we going to get this thing started? Are we going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it. You know why we're going to do it? Because this, 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 this won't hurt a bit. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, remember what we did last week? We talked about the boy in the pool. We talked about giving a beer to a dying man instead of technology. And we talked about severe hypothermia, the longest time dead. But we felt we need to do a bit more detail. So Jess, what are we doing in this second opinion? Well, since it brought up so many interesting questions, we felt we needed to get some experts for you. We're going to talk to a trauma surgeon who deals with severe hypothermia and those extreme resuscitations. And we're also going to talk about end-of-life care. When you see CPR done in the movies, which is most people's frame of reference for the only time they've ever seen CPR. Oh my God. It's uh, generally extremely ineffective CPR because you're not pushing nearly as hard as you need to push. Right. No, yeah. In the movies, there's more elbows from the person who's doing the CPR than the chest compressing from the person who's receiving the CPR. Yeah. In the movies, they're all bending at the elbow because you can't actually uh, compress the chest of an actor without hurting them. So, um, but in reality, you have to press very hard and also fast about a hundred times per minute. If you can, if you can picture the song in your in your head, staying alive, mm-hmm. and who can't? Yeah, it's <laughs> always. Oh, 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 oh. Stand stand there you go. <laughs> yeah, Acapella that's the note. speed with which you have to do CPR. Okay. Yep. So, so everyone should have that on their iPod as a public service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so the reason is because if you're, you know, you've got your adrenaline pumping, you're excited, this is a stressful situation, and you're just pushing as fast as you can, you're not giving the heart the recoil time it needs. You need to have that pause in between so the heart has recoil and that time to fill back up with blood so that it can then pump again. So you, you have to pump hard and fast, but not too fast. Mm-hmm. So about 100 times a minute. Yep. And it's deep. Mm. You know, it's in the average adult cell of two to three inches, which is quite Whoa. deep. You try and push down on somebody's chest two to three inches when they're awake, and you'll either hurt them, um, and you can even make their heart go into funky arrhythmias if you're not careful. So that's why we don't do it. So it's a really good point, Jess, that on the movies, you've never seen proper CPR, or at least I can't think of any movie or TV show where they're doing realistic CPR. It's also unrealistic because there was a number of actual medical studies that looked at TV programs and looked at movies and asked how often did people get resuscitated. They died, they did CPR, they defibrillated them. In the movies, how often do people come back? And it's around 80 to 90% oh, of the yeah, time. totally. <laughs> and in reality, for most people in the world, it's less than 5% of the time. And in LA County, for example, it's around 2% of the time. So... It's a problem because everybody has this expectation. Well, if grandma dies, if she's hit by a car and then mauled by a bear and then falls off a 50-foot building, a little CPR, she's going to be fine. And that's not how it is. If you're requiring CPR, then this is pretty serious. And the probability that you're going to survive is not very good. I was telling you before, a lot of these people, if they're younger in particular and if they didn't have a big heart attack and they had that electrical storm, had really good hearts otherwise. And if they could get you started again you could live for a long time. So the concept by a famous cardiologist was the heart too good to die. Let's do CPR and let's do defibrillation and let's try and get these generally pretty healthy young people back to life because they'll live for a long time. That concept has now been extended because of 
us doctors doing the wrong thing and TV shows and um, just the fact that we all want to live forever. So that now pretty much everybody that dies in a hospital gets an episode of CPR unless there's been a big discussion beforehand because everybody thinks that this is a magical way to get people back to life and it's just not. It was developed in and should only be used for people who have a good chance of coming back because their heart is good. We now have extended it to you know, a 95-year-old lady from a nursing home who's demented, who's got cancer, who has a frail heart and she comes in and dies and everybody starts doing CPR and trying to bring her back. I'm like, what are we doing here? We, she's not going to get better than she was before. It's her time. Mm-hmm. So we've extended this um, to silly concepts, you know. Thanks, movies. I think yeah. another thing that most people don't know is that when someone in that situation, for example, comes to the ER, they're going to get CPR unless there's a very specific order or documentation that you should not do that. And if if the paramedics show up with the patient without that order being very, very clear, the default is do CPR, do everything until mm. we can prove that you know, that's not what that person wanted and they have a specific DNR order. And I think that's unfortunate because most people, even if even if that's a wish that they've expressed at some point, if it's not proven, a lot of the time they just by default, they get this very aggressive CPR. And so DNR stands for do not resuscitate. So it's a specific form you can fill out and it can go with you. And I certainly will be having one at the end of my life um, because I don't want to go through all this stuff. There's another way to think about it, and there's a new term which I think makes it um, more palatable and actually is more realistic. What people want is to allow natural death. Mm. I don't want an unnatural death, and that's what CPR and stuff for so many people is. It's unnatural and it's not going to help. I want to allow natural death. So if I'm very elderly and I'm in the nursing home and I have a heart attack and my body's basically saying, you've had a good run, it's been a good life, Uh, we're done now, then I'm done, thank you. Mm So allow me to die naturally. Don't do these silly resuscitation things. It's sort of the Sarah Palin death panel things. Who are you to decide that this person right. shouldn't be given CPR in an ICU bed? It's like, no, who are you to say this person shouldn't have a nice transition exactly. to the a next life? death, right. As a layperson, though, I just want to emphasize how important early CPR is. Um, so the survival rates for CPR are unfortunately pretty low. Right. Who have a cardiac arrest. But one thing that really increases the chance of survival is early bystander CPR. So if you are that bystander, start chest compressions mm. early and then let the paramedics and the doctors take you. Or that. make sure you're on a movie or you're in a movie yes. and you get CPR because you got a 90% chance. <laughs> and you got a 90% chance, yes. So what, uh, one of the barriers against early CPR was that people don't like to do the breathing part. Yeah, I was going to ask. It's always accompanied with the breathing in movies. Yeah, it's like, yeah because it, dying is an unpleasant thing. There's often vomit and nastiness, and people are like, oh, I don't want to breathe for this guy. Yeah. If, if I have to do that, I'm going to keep walking. And uh, it turns out that compression only, forget the breathing part, because mm-hmm. it's actually pretty complicated. Like, when do I do it, and yeah. how many breaths, and how many compressions, and it changes every five minutes. Even as a doctor, you're like, what's today's recommendations? It changes all the time. Well, it turns out that there's recent evidence that suggests that um, compression, just doing the good chest compressions is at least as good and maybe better than trying to then also coordinate breathing for patients. So that's really good news, because it reduces that psychological barrier for people to go, I'll help out, I will do CPR. And it actually may be better than the old way, which was trying to blow into people's mouths, which maybe actually reduced the chance that they would 
come back to life. So compression-only CPR in adults is uh, definitely the recommended way for the non-expert provider to give uh, resuscitation. And some of the physiology behind that is because your blood has oxygen in it. And for you probably have several minutes worth of mm. oxygen in your blood that just needs to be circulated. Unless so, you're Houdini, because then you have like 10 minutes. At least, yeah. at least. Um, so it, yeah, it's not so much the breathing as it is the circulation, the compression. And then, well, as you were saying, as you start compressions, that that natural sort of vacuum the person's going to breathe back in a little just naturally. Yeah, there might be enough of an exchange of that oxygen within the lungs and maybe even into the outside world. Okay. But it's actually just as probably, that's probably the more important part early on is that you just, your blood's stagnant. It's just there. It's like, oh, I got some good oxygenated blood over there. Bring it around. Come on. How do I know when to stop CPR? Do they wake up and say like, oh, okay, I'm done. I'm done. You're good. You saved me. Thanks. Like, let's let's stop this. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a couple of scenarios. One is that that's the perfect one. You start CPR and 30 seconds in, you've done so good and the heart goes, yep, I'm good now. And they're like, uh, could you stop now? Right. Uh, then stop. There are rare cases actually when you stop, they are dead again. That's incredibly rare. You're doing very good CPR and you're circulating. If they keep dying every time you stop then keep going and say, I have to do this until the ambulance arrives because if I don't... This is not a fault on the person doing CPR. This is great CPR. They're doing a great okay, job. Okay, because that would feel really guilty. <laughs> if I was doing CPR and I cannot keep the person alive and they kept waking no. up and found like, I'm screwing this up. Like, no, please no, someone no. get here. No, that's a very rare circumstance. So the other thing is the sort of the recommendation right now is if the person's not breathing and they're not moving and you don't even have to feel for a pulse if you're a, a non-physician type because it's really hard to do that. And even physicians and stuff, we get it wrong. Is to go for about two minutes and then assess again. Hey, Mr. Smith, are you with me? Mr. Smith's not moving, nothing's going on. Get break back on as fast as you can. So usually for about two minutes. Uh, is, and then you keep doing it as a layperson. You keep doing it until the ambulance arrives. Now, if you're in the middle of nowhere and you're with your friend and it's uh, you're a thousand miles from anywhere, mm -hmm. you have to decide how long you're going to go. Ugh. That sucks. Oh, that's a downside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's like yeah, and then you just, and then if you're that far away, it's like and then how long do you wait before I eat him? Oh, <laughs> that's that's upsetting. Those are way too many decisions. Donner party yeah. of one. <laughs> Disco can save lives. Yes, disco. Huh? Check it out. What do you think? What? So I'm feeling pretty good about CPR and everything uh, we've learned. But now I have a bunch of questions about hypothermia. Great. And I'm so glad you asked because we're going to get into some greater detail right now. This concept that a person can actually be frozen with no neurologic function and then be rewarmed and brought back to life well this just blows my mind so we found an expert to talk to about this chuck yowler i am the director of the burn center at metro health medical center which is a campus of case western reserve university in cleveland ohio and i'm professor of surgery in the department of surgery at case western 
Wait, wait, wait. He just said burn surgeon. That's the wrong temperature, right? Well, it turns out that trauma and burn surgeons are also the experts in dealing with severe hypothermia. And in the sometimes frozen tundra of Cleveland, well, they see hypothermia, severe hypothermia, a lot. So we asked Dr. Yowler, how is it physiologically possible that a person can be frozen, essentially frozen, and then be brought back to life? Now, before we get into his explanation, a couple vocab words that you need to know. Asystole, or being asystolic, is when the heart is not pumping at all. It's just at a standstill. And ventricular fibrillation, well, that's when the ventricles of the heart are just sort of wiggling around with no coordinated motion. So they can't pump the blood. Well, certainly hypothermia can cause asystole and ventricular fibrillation and loss of all neurologic responses. So the patient doesn't have brainstem reflexes, doesn't have higher cerebral reflexes, and maybe be asystolic. So that's dead, except we now know that if you warm these people up, they regain their heartbeat, they regain neurologic function, and approximately 20 to 30% will regain full neurologic function. So are cold humans basically just like bears in hibernation? It's similar to hibernation. Obviously, hibernation is a totally different genetic uh, effect. But yes. So we have a patient that's cold and dead. But it doesn't mean that every single person that's cold and dead can really be brought back to life. It doesn't work like that. We occasionally in Cleveland get people who are fished out of Lake Erie that haven't been seen for a day or two with temperatures of 26 degrees. That's 26 degrees Celsius, which is 78 Fahrenheit. And they don't warm up. If you are doing all you can to warm a patient, so you're using warm fluids, you're using a bear hugger, you're doing everything to warm them, and they don't warm up, they are dead, and they can be declared dead even though they're cold. The running joke around here is, you know, try to warm up anybody in the morgue. You're not going to. So a body that you can't warm is dead. And the techniques that are used to warm patients? You have the bear huggers, the external warming, you have internal warming setups. It sort of depends what you have at your hospital also. People can be warmed on bypass, femoral femoral bypass. There are now intravascular devices that you can insert that cool and heat patients. Uh, They're commonly used for uh, hypothermia following cardiac injury. Those same devices can be set to warm you. So what is it that's so special about that 20 to 30% of patients who are neurologically dead, severely hypothermic, but then get warmed and make a full recovery? What's the secret? Well, a 20 to 30% obviously that have a full neurologic recovery probably got cold very fast. They cooled very quickly. They tend to be the people that fell in a cold lake, for example. They cooled very quickly versus a person who's just found out in the woods and probably cooled more slowly, because that's the key, the speed at which they're cool. And when was the last time Dr. Yala saw a patient with hypothermia like we've been discussing? We had a woman last year who was found with a core temperature of 26 degrees, who was actually frozen to the ground, and EMS had to get instruments to break her from the ground. She was frozen to the ground. Physically attached to the earth by ice. They actually had to get crowbars and snow shovels to pry her and break her from the ground. And she made a complete neurologic recovery. Now, is that typical? No, but it happened. And uh, she certainly, I I don't want, she certainly lost some fingers. I mean, she had some problems, but no, no neurologic problems. She made a full recovery. So in summary, we have a cold, dead person who might have severe hypothermia. So the team does everything it can to warm them up. And if they warm up, they might have a chance for a neurologic recovery. 
Well, thanks so much to Dr. Yowler, and I promise, we'll be chatting with you again in the future. I'm not dead! What? Nothing. Here's your nine puts. I'm not dead! Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not... Okay, that answered quite a few of my questions on my uh, my piece of paper here. Uh, so I have a couple I've knocked off, but there's still a few more and um, a couple new ones. First of all, it's a two it's a two parter question. Uh, how does the cardiopulmonary bypass machine work? I think I got that right. And what the heck is a bear hugger? Okay, well, let's start with cardiopulmonary bypass. And that's actually exactly how it sounds. Cardio is heart, heart. pulmonary is lungs, and bypass means you're skipping over those things. You're passing over them. So we need a machine that can do the same type of function as your heart and your lungs. The heart is the pump for the blood in the body. So that's one function that this bypass machine has to do is circulate the blood throughout your body. And then the pulmonary function, well, your lungs just provide oxygen into your blood and into your red blood cells and it carries that around to your body. So we need a way that's artificial of doing that. And so in the bypass machine, it allows for the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. So you're pumping the blood and you're delivering oxygen to the rest of the body. Is this being taken out of you or is it all happening inside of you and just bypassing uh, your heart? It's actually being taken out of you. So you put a a catheter into like a big artery in your leg, for example. It goes out into the magic machine and there's a nurse uh, perfusionist running the magic machine and then it gets oxygenated and it comes back to you and pumped back into you. So it's actually leaving you. Bye-bye, but it comes back. It's very cool. Very expensive machines. They're actually developed for cardiac surgery. So you can imagine if you're a cardiac surgeon and Dave, you need cardiac surgery. And I've got to put in some really small stitches into the really small arteries into your very big heart. But your heart's going boom, 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 boom. You'd really like your heart to stop so I wouldn't screw it up. So they actually stop your heart and they can do cardiac surgery. You put on the bypass machine so you don't die. And then at the end of the surgery, they start your heart back up. Bing! And off you go. Another thing it can do is actually help warm up your blood or cool down your blood, depending on what's needed. And of course, in the case of extreme hypothermia, it would be warming up your blood before it circulates back into your body. So that's why you can use it in these severely hypothermic patients. You put them on bypass. You're not going to do heart surgery on them, but you're going to use that machine to warm up the blood much faster than you could possibly do it by the other methods, which we use uh, with things like the bear hugger. Yeah, the bear hugger. Ah, which brings us to your next question, Dave. Yes, the two part. The bear hugger. The second part of my complicated question. Yeah, this is pretty high science. Mel, you want to take that one? Yeah, so a bear hugger is, uh, you know, forests. And in forests, in a lot of forests, there are these big animals that have four legs and have a lot of fur. And so you train these things called bears to come into the emergency department of the operating room. And when somebody's really cold, the bear (laughs) will hug the person very tightly in what we call a bear hug and uh, will transmit the warmth of their fur to the person. That's great. It would be awesome if it was true. But that is not what a bear hugger is. It would be awesome if it was true. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's not B-E-A-R, bear. It's B-A-I-R. 
B-A-I-R. B-A-I-R. Don't ask me why it's spelled that way. It just is. And what it is, it's like a little... It's a blankie. It's a warming blankie. It's a little it's like blanket? A, it's a big blankie. Oh. It's like a sleeping bag uh-huh. hooked up to a hairdryer, blowing hot air into it, and then it covers you, and it keeps you warm. So it's just a method of warming someone up by external warming. That's better. Thank you. Yes, I'm rumbly and my tumbly. Time for something sweet. Uh, is it common protocol, regardless of the situation, that every patient gets warmed up because you just assume they can be brought back? Or is it just based off sort of information that's coming to you in real time? That's a tough question because, I mean, we do kind of go off the mantra, you're not dead until you're warm and dead. But It's kind of hard sometimes if we don't know the circumstances to know whether we should aggressively warm them or if they just simply were dead first and then got cold. So oftentimes we'll try to warm them up and see if they physically warm up. If you can't physically warm someone up, then perhaps they were just dead first. Mm. So, yeah, what Jess, let me say what Jess said another way. If you die, David, we'll be very sad. If you die right now, thank you. Thank you. You will stay warm for a while, but you're not circulating anymore, your cells start to die, your metabolism stops. So all of that stuff about being alive, which creates warmth and energy, will go away. So over time, over the hours, your temperature will get closer and closer and closer to the temperature of the room. And so, yeah, the trick is, uh, is this person cold because they've been dead at home for three days? Or are they cold because they got hypothermic first and they're in that hibernation state. And sometimes you can look at the patient and tell. For example, if you look at somebody who's been lying on the ground for a long time and they died three days ago, you'll often see this line of demarcation of the blood actually settles and you can see the blood settled in them. So half their body is white and the other half is pink or bluish in color because the blood has settled. Or you try and move their arms and legs and they're stiff. They have rigor mortis. So that's their stiff and you can't bend them because all their processes have stopped and now they've gotten all stiff. So, so sometimes you can tell the, the the blood sort of off topic. The blood pools. Um, yeah. It just goes towards gravity, and yeah. so like your top half is empty, and the rest of it's just sitting in your back. Yeah, yeah. So um, and actually, forensic um, pathologists and stuff use this. You can tell if somebody died while they were sitting, or died while they were standing, or died where they were lying down, because oh. gravity will work on your blood and pull it down to the most dependent or lowest portion. So uh, you'll often see that in somebody who's been dead for a few days, and you look at them, you can tell the position that their body was in by the way their blood has pooled, because it's a liquid, and it sloshes around to the. It follows gravity. Hmm. How come it doesn't coagulate? Do you, do you need oxygen? Does, does it have to come into contact with oxygen in order to coagulate? It's doing it at the same time. It'll coagulate eventually, but um, in the meantime, it'll also be in a semi-liquid form and then it'll co- coagulate. And that's when you see the dark color. Ah, huh. Oh, that's interesting. So if they died standing, it'd be like all on their shins and their toes. Right. If they <laughs> Most people don't die standing, but... <laughs> they know, died but they doing did. a handstand and they stayed <laughs> in the handstand position, they'd have a big blue head. Yeah. Nothing weird about that. No, no. Totally normal. How do you want to die? <laughs> How do I want to die? Um, That's Wendy Rotowice, EM rap producer extraordinaire, producer of the upcoming Fooly Boo Kids Science Podcast, Shabam, and director of the feel-good hospice documentary of the year, Stopping for Death, The Nurses of Wells House Hospice. 
If you're not familiar with the concept of hospice, it's an end-of-life facility where patients go when they've run out of all other options. It's really a place they go to die. After over 300 hours of filming the nurses and the patients experience death and life and everything in between, here's what she had to say. I think that I, you know, we saw some what they would call good deaths and we saw some bad deaths. The bad deaths are the kind where the person who is dying has not accepted that they're dying and they fight it tooth and nail. And that's really hard for the patients. It's really hard for the families. And it's incredibly hard on the nurses because they see that there's another way to do this. And it, it's really sad when that happens, when when the patient, for whatever reason, can't come to terms with what's going on. And we saw that sometimes where, you know, they had family members that had disowned them and they were never able to make peace with them. So they weren't really able to, to, you know, let go in a way that let them pass on with ease. And then we saw really good deaths uh, with patients who maybe had incredibly hard lives. Um, we saw, you know, former gang members and, and, and people who had been in and out of jail. And they had family members who, who loved and cared about them and, and were at their bedside. And sometimes we saw that some of the patients didn't have those family members and the nurses became their family and they were at their bedside and they were there with them. And those were the good deaths where they were able to let go in a way that was peaceful and calm with a group of people around them. And I'd say that that's how I'd like to go. I'd love to have the people who know me and love me the most around me at that time and to not fight it and, and to, to come to peace with it. Um, so what was your question, Dave? Well, I'm curious to know how you deal with death at home, meaning after you've experienced the death at work, do you take that baggage with you at home and how do you deal with it? Or do you just not deal with it all? It's just something you leave at the door at work and you come home and put on another face, which doesn't seem all that healthy. Well, I guess you know how I deal with it because I come home and I talk to you. Right. So... That's what I have to do. I I think the, oh God, the, one of the hardest things about what we do is something tragic happens and you have this terrible situation and you tell family terrible news, the worst possible news. And um, your shift's not over just because you told that family that someone's died. Like you can't sit there and mourn with that family for very long because the waiting room's full and there's other people waiting to be seen and there's other people who are sick. And so you take that moment, but then you have to go on with the rest of your shift. You have to go into the next room and you can't walk into that room crying and saying, I'm so sorry. I just had to tell someone that their loved one died. So now tell me about how you sprained your ankle. You can't do that. Because that person has a real problem too, and they need your attention also. And so almost like it's on shift that you really have to compartmentalize those feelings and give your your best effort to the next patient and the patient after that. And that's really hard. How much time can you, you got to take a moment for yourself before you move on. And that kind of leaves, at least for me, it leaves me at the end of the day like, oh my God, this terrible thing happened. I coped with it, not at all. And now here I am driving home and I've got this like thing that happened like weighing on me that 
I have to deal with because I haven't been able to yet, even though it may have happened eight hours ago. You've summarized it well. At work, at the time, so much of the time, you have to use forced suppression of your emotions. You have to get through the shift. You have to do the next thing. And you end up dealing with it later. Now, I've sort of divide the deaths I've seen in the emergency department. There are three sort of categories I put it in. One is the good death. Um, grandma who's old who comes in and the family are gathered around and everybody's in agreement that the right thing to do now is to let grandma go and you can really help families in that situation and you can guide them through it and that is not at all depressing that is really uh, life affirming to go through that and to hear their stories and to help people like that they're some of the most enjoyable moments of my medical career having done that then there is the death of a child and that's the worst possible thing that I've ever dealt with. Um, and that, again, as Jess said, you have to, at the time, so many times you have to tell the family and suppress your desire to scream or to cry or just to fall apart, frankly. And you have to uh, suppress that. That doesn't mean you don't show emotion, um, but you quickly have to get it together and move on to the next patient. And there are many other sick people. So that's difficult because you get to deal with that at your leisure when you go home. And if you don't deal with that, it can, um, it can come back at you when you least expect it. That's very difficult. And then there are the other group of deaths that I think about, which is sort of uh, because I worked for a long time in inner city LA, where gangbangers were just killing each other. And it's so surreal. It seems surreal. You could see three or four people shot dead and die in front of you in the space of a few minutes. And to me, it, it was always so surreal and bizarre. It even it, I was sort of disjointed from it. It's like, this is crazy. I can't even f- put my head around the fact that these kids usually are all dead because they shot each other because they, uh, they were in gangs. So they're my three sort of groups. One is great and one is incredibly depressing. The other one is just so bizarre I can never get my head around it after 25 years of seeing it. I still... I can't really mourn it because it's so bizarre to me. There's one kid, and this might illuminate you can have good deaths. So grandma came in to the emergency department, very sick, from a nursing home, with an infection. And I had a 16-year-old kid with me who was thinking about he wanted to be a doctor. And I said, look, this is pretty intense. Are you ready? And I talked to his parents, and they wanted him to come, and he was really gung-ho. So he came and followed me on shifts as a volunteer. And grandma came in and she was really sick. And uh, we had a sort of a DNR order from her and her daughter came and her daughter said, I don't know why they transported her, but um, she really didn't want anything done, just keep her comfortable. So we kept her comfortable and her daughter sat there and held her hand and it was a good death. And she died. And this 16-year-old kid who'd never seen anybody dead before was sitting in the room and watched the whole thing. And it was incredibly intense. You can imagine as a 16-year-old watching somebody die talking and then not talking and then dead. And at the end of this, I took him aside to do my grief counseling. And uh, his response was, that was the most wonderful thing I've ever seen. And uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a doctor. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And now having seen that, that's what I want to do. I want to be doing that kind of stuff because... Um, that was the most profound thing I think I'll ever see in my life. And like, see, death can be good. And that was good. We're going to end it there. We hope that this answered your questions. But if it didn't, 
We want to know. So contact us. You can tweet us at won't hurt a bit pod. That's our handle. You can like us on Facebook and you can message us there. And of course, go to our website, won't hurt a bit.com, and you can shoot us an email. Coming up in two weeks, we have an episode called Up in Smoke. We think you're going to like it. We do. We hope so. We're going to be talking about cigarettes and marijuana and vaping and hookahs and all things that are smoky and up-like in nature. For the good and for the bad. So thanks to our guests, to Dr. Chuck Yala, trauma and burn surgeon from Cleveland, to Wendy Rodeweiss, director and producer. Thanks to Jess Mason, Dave Mason, my name's Mel Herbert. This one heard a bit is a production of Foolyboo Incorporated, produced by CeCe Herbert and Bill Connor. The information you hear on this one heard a bit should not be taken as actual medical advice. If you have actual medical questions about actual medical things, you should see an actual medical practitioner. Even though we are actually doctors, we're not your actual doctor. So be sensible and keep it real. And this, oh this, 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 this,